Can the former champ make one last run in the wrestling business? What was the impact of Gotch's rematch against Hackenschmidt? What does an icon do when history passes him by? How does the story end? Find out today in the final episode in the series about Tom Jenkins. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. You did it. You pressed a button. You downloaded an episode. I assume you're listening to it. Otherwise, it's on mute or you're not paying attention. You're listening to me talk. I'm talking from the past. Or are you listening into the future? I guess everything's relative. What am I talking about? What's even happening? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter, a pro wrestling booker, often a ring announcer, but more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling historian. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. I assume this is not your first time. This isn't your first rodeo, not your first listen. Because, as the description says, this is Tom Jenkins Part 11. It is the final episode of this series. It has been quite the ride over the last six months. We've learned a lot, we've connected with Tom Jenkins, we've explored every aspect of his life, and it all leads to this. And if this is your first listen, you just managed to stumble across this and wanted to check it out, well, I'm, I'm super happy that you did so. And if you are familiar with the history of pro wrestling in the early 20th century. You probably know who we're talking about and what's happening, and you might get something out of this. Otherwise, you might want to go back to part one. If this is a character you want to learn about, you're in the right place. Hit the download button on episode one, and you'll catch up to me here at some point. And I'm excited about this episode, not just because it's a cool story, not because it's an interesting tale, not because we are wrapping up this big picture story that I've been working on for quite some time. I'm excited because in my estimation, I achieved the objective I set out for. That There really is no big biography of Tom Jenkins. There is no definitive book. I couldn't go back and like read so-and-so's biography about the man. I couldn't read the quintessential tale of this man. I had to do all of this. I had to bake this from scratch as, uh, as if it were a cake. A very long baking, long mixing, big ingredient cake. This is a story that I wanted to do in great detail because, again, this information isn't out there. It hasn't been compiled into one source. Tom Jenkins is almost always a background character in other people's stories. He's a guy in the background of the Frank Gotch, George Hackenschmidt drama. He became one of the biggest sports stars in America, if not the Western world. He was, for quite some time, a much bigger star than pretty much any man who donned a pair of trunks and a pair of wrestling boots and stepped into the ring. And yet, he's always kind of banished to a chapter in a book about another man, or a cursory history, a survey class about the uh, the topic of wrestling in the early 20th century, and I really wanted to shine a spotlight on him, and hopefully you agree that we have done a very good job at that. Also, I wanted to revisit this era because I spent a lot of time on this era when the show first started. It was something that I didn't do a great job on because in those days I was reading a book or two and I was taking the author's research at face value and presenting it as that. So I wasn't doing the deep dives into the newspaper archives. I was reading what other people had done. I was accepting their research and opinions as correct without really fact-checking a lot of things. And thus in those early episodes about Muldoon, Strangler Lewis, Gotch and Hackenschmidt, I feel like there's a lot of errors, a lot of things omitted, and a lot of things that I just needed to flesh out more than I did back then. So those authors that I reference, they didn't do a terrible job. They weren't maliciously leaving things out or doing bad research. This was a time before the internet really took off, before you could log on to the New York Times website and read their articles going back to the 1800s. You couldn't really go to like newspapers.com and then search everything by name. You had to go to the library and break out the microfiche and search whatever you could get your hands on 
And sports journalism in those days was terrible because if you're in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you could be reading 10 articles about a wrestling match and have six different versions of the story because the sports writers didn't necessarily understand wrestling or know the moves or understand the drama of it or they left before the match was over because they had to catch a train back to the city they live in or they had a deadline. So yeah, there was a lot of mistakes and you really have to look at about sometimes 10 different articles about a single match to get the best kind of truth, if you will, of the moment of the situation and the ability to tell the story as close to the historic facts as possible. Again, that's what I'm hoping I've achieved here. So we pick up where we left off in the last episode, where Tom Jenkins was coming out of retirement every now and then. He was picking up matches that would be close enough to West Point, where he was coaching boxing and wrestling. He was working when he could, where he could, primarily during the holiday breaks when he could sneak away, because he had an amazing job. He had put behind him the nonstop travel and drama and intrigues and everything in the pro wrestling business. He was given an extraordinary position by President Theodore Roosevelt to coach cadets at West Point, and that meant he could stay in one place. He could have his family with him. He didn't have to jump on a train at least once a week and go across the country. All he had to do was mold the character and physicality of the military officers of tomorrow and, you know, didn't have to wonder where the next check was coming from, where the next payday was coming from. He was set. But as with all wrestlers, boxers, fighters, the ring always beckons. It's always going to be calling you in the night, and it's just a matter of time before you answer one more time. And in the late summer of 1911, he was part of George Hackenschmidt's training camp in Chicago preparing for his rematch with Frank Gotch. The sporting world was talking about one thing and one thing only, and this is in the first week of September 1911, and that's the rematch between Frank Gotch and George Hackenschmidt in Chicago on Labor Day. It was inescapable, and I am dead serious when I say that every major newspaper in the U.S. had an article about it. Every single day, there was something leading up to the event of the century. The Chicago Tribune on September 3rd dedicated an enormous amount of space to it, breaking down both men's accomplishments and styles. Quote, Gotch has brought more intellect, more Yankee cunning, to put it that way, to bear on the wrestling game than any other ten men who ever worked at the trade from Milo of Croton, 700 BC, down to Farmer Burns. And yeah, I'm not exactly sure how much Yankee cunning Milo of Croton had, to be honest, but it's an impressive description. Gotch was seen as cunning to the point of cruelty, especially when employing his toehold. Contrasting to Hackenschmidt's style, quote, Hack realized slowly that he could not wrestle Gotch's way and that all he could do was to keep Gotch from throwing him. That line of campaign was successful to the limit of its possibilities. Nor could Ulysses, for his art renowned, o'erturn the strength of Ajax on the ground. So I truly love the pretentiousness of the sports writer, really laying it in. I, of course, do the same damn thing, so I'm just appreciating it and equally guilty. The rules of the match listed were, the ring must be between 14 and 24 feet, with three ropes. The ring canvas must be stretched taut and afford even footing. Fingernails must be trimmed to avoid cutting the skin. Both men must wear trunks, socks, and boots. No buckles or fastenings. Tights are optional. Guess it's a style question. If their cornermen enter the ring, the wrestler will be disqualified. Two out of three falls. Two a finish. Stranglehold barred. No gouging. No striking. No hair pulling or pulling of the ear. No finger or toe bending. Throwing or even trying to throw an opponent over the ropes is forbidden. No rope breaks. Clutching the trunks for leverage, also forbidden. 
and if they do go under the ropes, they will be restarted in the same position in the middle of the canvas. Between falls, 10 to 15 minutes of rest, and if a ref is injured, the ref can appoint a replacement, and yes, that sounds suspicious as fuck, like they're gonna do some sort of ref bump with a replacement slide and finish. Unfortunately, it didn't get that fun, but it's silly to see it there. And also, not trying is grounds for disqualification. So if you just stall, 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 go in a turtle position, refusing to be turned over, you make it no fun for anyone, well, congratulations, you will be disqualified. The New York Times did a rundown on the stats of both men on the day of the match, May 4th, 1911. Gotch, 33 years versus Hackenschmidt's 34 years. 204 pounds for Gotch versus 224 for Hackenschmidt. Gotch was 5 foot 11 versus Hackenschmidt's 5 foot 9 and a half. This is where we get a little bit different with the 45 inch chest versus 52. Waist, 34 inches versus 40. 42 inch hips versus 42 and a half. 22 inch thighs versus 28. 73 inch reach versus 75 and 14 and a half inch biceps versus 19 inches so hack definitely a bigger man if you are his tailor you can probably get started on the suit right from there on paper it was physically close but context is everything hack was a power lifter who bulked his way to that weight while gotch was naturally that weight this had a huge bearing on how your joints hold up, as well as your cardio. Keep in mind that the biggest problems Hack had in their earlier match was getting dragged into deep waters that he never swam before. He was mostly a guy who could put anyone away in a matter of minutes with his good Greco-Roman technique and his insane strength. But if he wrestles somebody who knows how to play defensive in a catch-as-catch-can style, and drags them past their point of cardio, well, that changes everything. It also didn't help that Hackenschmidt's knees were failing because any power lifter will tell you your knees are really not meant to do those kinds of things, and over the decades, they do wear down. Well, how did it go? Keep in mind that this was almost certainly the biggest wrestling match in American history up to this point. Gotch had elevated wrestling into the next level of cultural importance and made himself a crossover superstar. The match took place in a baseball field that could hold 30,000 people. It was high stakes, and it had to deliver. But did it? Oh goodness no, it did not. The New York Times again on the 5th. Gotch, champion wrestler of the world. Russian blames bad knee. Less than 20 minutes of actual wrestling. 30,000 persons at this match. Quote, The Russian showing was pitiful. The crowd decreed that he had quit, but the defeated challenger, through copious tears, averred that he entered the arena with a wrench knee, on which Gotch worked and speedily reduced him to a state of comparative helplessness. It took Gotch 14 minutes, 18 seconds to gain the first fall, the second in 5 minutes 32 seconds. Quote, Which Hackenschmidt's friends assert proved that his knee was in bad condition. Referee Smith is authority for the statement that when Gotch secured the fatal toe lock which won him the match, Hackenschmidt cried out, Don't hurt my toe! And a second later, Don't hurt my leg! And fell with his shoulders to the mat, frothing at the mouth. Frank Gotch went on the record saying, Quote, Honestly, I didn't think it would be so easy. Hackenschmidt gave me such a desperate struggle in our first meeting that I was prepared and expected to go through with a hard, drawn-out battle. The very minute we locked heads, I felt confident that I would win, but I really did not think victory would come so quickly. Hackenschmidt did not display the nerve and strength he did in our first contest. He wasn't aggressive. He appeared to be afraid. When I saw that Hack did not break down my defensive squirm-out holds, I became determined to end it as quickly as possible. I am sorry he laid his miserable showing to an injured knee, for I wanted to make the victory a clean one. When I defeated him three years ago, it was charged that I won unfairly. Today, I hoped that Hackenschmidt would be at his best, 
for I wanted to prove that I was his master. Hackenschmidt replied to the paper, quote, It was the cheapest world championship ever won. I entered the contest with an injured knee and had my shoulders pinned to the mat for the first time in my wrestling career. I have no one to blame. I shouldn't have gone into the match, but I was advised that I could wrestle without further injuring my knee. But we scarcely had got to work when Gotch began to torture me with his toe grips. I then realized that I was in no condition to continue. I am not a quitter. Neither do I desire to charge that I was not treated fairly. I am satisfied that my defeat was due entirely to the injury. I would like to meet Gotch again, for I feel deeper than my words can tell the loss of this match. I did my best under the conditions. That is all I can say. But other people told a different story. Apparently, Hack was a mess upon arrival in Chicago. He apparently couldn't sleep, looked pale and upset, and had someone sing him Russian songs to try to get him to sleep the night before the match. According to the Omaha Daily Bee, on September 5th, Dr. J.J. Davis, who examined both opponents, could find no problem with Hack's knee before the match. Attached to the San Francisco Chronicle on the 5th, with the article, Russian makes pitiful showing against Gotch, were some interesting facts. Attendance was estimated at 30000 Total receipts, $87,058. Gotch's share was 21000 and 50% of the film profits. Hack got 13500 Jack Curley got $29,037 as the promoter, and that's a hell of a split. The promoter made a fortune. Gotch made very good money, and Hackenschmidt came in third out of all of them, and there are also stories about how he didn't even get that full amount because by the time he got back across the Atlantic, what are you going to do? Sue Jack Curley from England? Not exactly something you could do very easily in those days. So yes, Hackenschmidt was humiliated. Hackenschmidt was beaten. Hackenschmidt was reduced to a bit of a crybaby to the press, and on the back end, he made less money out of it than anyone involved. And despite his initial claims of wanting a third match, Hackenschmidt decided he was done with wrestling in the USA. The New York Times on September 6th, Hack never coming back. Defeated Russian wrestler will sail from New York Saturday. Hackenschmidt had departed from Chicago for New York City a day after offering to post $5,000 for a private match with Gotch. So, what happened? Everyone had a different story years later, with people inserting themselves into the narrative when they weren't there, claiming to have secrets only they possessed, and since Hackenschmidt outlived nearly everyone involved, he was able to spin it his way for decades. My guess is that it was completely psychological. He had probably dealt with a knee injury, and was probably having issues, but so do all athletes as they lead up to the big moment in any sport. I assumed that he had never been legitimately beaten, let alone worked over and made to feel helpless by a dirty wrestler and a referee who wouldn't call the fouls. His confidence was shot, and he had no capacity to control the narrative or protect his interests going into the rematch. Keep in mind, he was a master of keeping control of the variables to ensure a clean match, or good enough to win if he didn't. For the first time in his life, he wasn't in a strong position, contract-wise, and was against someone who could beat him. Does this mean I think it was a legitimate contest? I do. Or, if it was a cash-out work for Hackenschmidt before leaving America, his mental health issues made it all go sideways. Either way, his courage failed him, and he looked like an asshole in front of the whole world. The film of the match was a hit, and it would play from Albuquerque to Sydney, Australia. It was two complete reels, shot ringside, in quality good enough to see the, quote, wrinkles on the brow of Hack. The film was last seen in 1912 in Australia, and is sadly almost certainly lost forever. By September 6th, Gotch was announcing a theatric tour of the United States, quote, no real wrestling bouts will be attempted, as the contracts call for exhibitions only. 
In other words, he just made a shitload of money, so why not take it easy, but still mop up a bit more on an easy showbiz tour? There would immediately be accusations of this being a hippodrome, but honestly a worked match at that level would require an important element, it being entertaining enough to give the crowd their money's worth. Plus, if it was a work, Hackenschmidt certainly wouldn't have heaped that much humiliation upon himself voluntarily. But public perception is everything in entertainment. This was supposed to be the biggest match ever. It was supposed to be the Hogan versus Andre the Giant, Stone Cold versus The Rock. But in the end, it was a bust, and the sporting public walked away in disgust, damaging wrestling's prestige and drawing power for many years to come. The fallout of this was far-reaching, and we'll touch upon it when necessary, but I don't want to shift the focus fully away from Tom Jenkins to a subject that could easily be its own episode, if not series. On Christmas Day 1911, the New York Times reported on a handicap match between Stanislaw Zabisco and the Italian champion Giovanni Rasiovic. It was the previous night in Madison Square Garden in New York City, and Tom Jenkins was the guest referee in this match. So Zabisco had to throw his opponent three times in one hour, and if winning, he would get a shot against Frank Gotch, or at least that's how it was advertised. At the four-minute, 32nd point of the second fall, Rasiovic thought he had a pin, but Zabisco was close to the edge of the canvas. Jenkins tapped him on the shoulder to restart it in the middle, but Rasiovic thought this meant he pinned Zabisco and won. Quote, Rasiovic thought that he had gained the fall legitimately and walked from the arena. His constituents, which consisted of hundreds of Italians, created a wild scene upon thinking their champion had been victorious, and a general hullabaloo followed. There's nothing like a good hullabaloo, I agree. The Chicago Tribune clearly assigned blame on December 26th with the headline, Referee Cause of Mistake. The New York Times further clarified things with the headline, Italians break up big wrestling bout. Quote, Thousands of enthusiastic Italians jumped from their seats and rushed around the ring, and the special policemen were powerless to stop them. Risevich does not understand English and did not wait for any explanation. So we have this delightful mental image of Stanislaw Zabisco nearly getting pinned, nearly under the rope. Tom Jenkins signals that it's time to restart it. Risevich, who doesn't understand any English, stands up and celebrates. The crowd rushes down and picks him up and carries him out like he won the goddamn championship. The Super Bowl rolled all into one and carry him out. And since they didn't speak any English, no shouting or trying to restore order meant a damn thing. Probably made Jenkins look like a real jerk, but it's a little bit too funny for me to feel bad for him. The Buffalo Times on December 28, 1911, with Gotch wins and declares that he is through. Champion announces that Wrestling Matt will never see him again. After beating Alex Monroe in Kansas City, Gotch claimed that he is retiring. Really this time. Promise. No takesy-backsies. Promises forever. Gotch, as you've probably figured out, had a habit of once he made a major accomplishment, he would say he's retiring and stepping away from the sport, possibly because he was legitimately getting tired of the wrestling business, but didn't really know how to escape it. Maybe it was more of a press game, a psychological game, a way to gain publicity and make everyone yearn for his return to the ring, thus increasing box office and betting, maybe a little column A, a little column B, who can say for sure. And a bit of non-wrestling news from the Buffalo commercial on January 4th, 1912. Soft job for Tom Jenkins. A Detroit company, EMF Auto, as in cars, not the bus driver in The Simpsons, offered him a job in the factory, and he could teach boxing, wrestling, and gymnastics on Saturday. And if this sounds like the most minor bit of wrestling rumordom, then keep this in mind. Everyone was talking about it. I found this article in dozens of major newspapers in the U.S. and Canada. Of course, he wasn't going to leave West Point. It was too good of a job. And why would he leave a job he loves coaching wrestling and boxing to go work in a goddamn car factory? Obviously, it wasn't going to happen. 
but it was speculated in the press for days. But one job he would take was in New York City. According to the Kansas City Star on January 18, 1912, Tom Jenkins will instruct officers how to throw unruly prisoners. New York Mayor Ganner's idea of teaching police how to wrestle was in play, and Commissioner Waldo, quote, announced today that he had engaged Tom Jenkins, the Cleveland wrestler, to teach members of the force how to grapple with a criminal without calling the billy into play. The January 19, 1912 Daily Long Island Democrat covered it as well, that Jenkins will teach the police the science of catch-as-catch-can. Quote, The commissioner believes that wrestling will be a quicker, surer, and less brutal method of overpowering dangerous citizens than the old-style way of clubbing them into insensibility. Jesus fucking Christ, how bad is your brutality situation when in 1912 you're already being publicly accused of clubbing too many people into comas? Jesus Christ. And apparently while in New York he was picking up other work, on February 12, 1912, the New York Times reports that Tom Jenkins will be the guest referee in another match between Stanislaw Zabisco and Italian wrestler Giovanni Rasevich. To help Giovanni Rasevich and to avoid another batch of bullshit, they would have an Italian interpreter ringside by Jenkins. Can't have a repeat of last time now, can we? The New York Times on the 13th reviewed the match. Rasevich quits in wrestling match. Zabisco gains one fall and then Italian declares he is hurt. Zabisco got the first fall in 54 minutes, 52 seconds, and Rysevich claimed his knee was hurt and he couldn't come out for a second fall. Still a disappointment to the fans, but at least Jenkins didn't look like an absolute schmuck in the middle of it. On March 11, 1912, the Baltimore Sun covered Tom Jenkins instructing the New York Police Department. Jiu-Jitsu versus Nightstick. Tom Jenkins teaches game to Gotham's Peace Guardians. One disturbing line was, quote, the stranglehold possibly will supplant one of the functions of the nightstick. This hold, when applied wisely, is unbreakable. It is sure death when pressed to the ultimate finish, but disfigurement does not attend its application. Yeah, where we kind of saw where strangleholds and policing met and how badly that went and how badly it still goes to this day. Not blaming Tom Jenkins, but that didn't help. And again, while in New York, the New York Sun on March 12th listed Jenkins as a referee for the Intercollegiate Wrestling Association Tournament on the 22nd. So yeah, he may not be doing many matches, but he's sure picking up work as a referee. Oh, and remember the Maybray Gang scandal I mentioned in the last episode? A large-scale gambling fixing operation that swindled people coast to coast when they bet on fixed boxing, wrestling, horse races, whatever? Well... The head honcho, John C. Maybray, was released in Kansas City from prison on the 25th and was given hours to leave the city. Quote, Kansas City does not want chief of swindlers to remain in the town. He defied the police and claimed he wasn't going anywhere. The police replied with threats of arrest for vagrancy. A hearing was set for the following day, according to the March 26th Tacoma Ledger. From the Washington Times on August 11th, 1912, Soldiers make good wrestlers, says instructor. Tom Jenkins of Military Academy had one speedy youngster. Tom Jenkins talked about the discipline and skills of his students, including a young man named Richards who, in Jenkins' estimation, could throw anyone at 158 pounds. Very specific on the weight class, obviously. And around this time, we do start seeing information about his students popping up. And yes, they were military men. They were cadets. They weren't going out and being pro wrestlers. They were competing in intercollegiate matches. They were occasionally popping up doing challenge matches, but he clearly had an aptitude as a coach, as an instructor, because we start hearing more and more about the men he trained. And Jenkins himself was also getting to the age and the point in his career where people were getting nostalgic for his days of glory, the time when he was one of the titans along with Frank Gotch and Dan McLeod and Farmer Burns and others. The Cleveland leader on December 1st, 1912. Wrestling game is short on material. 
On the heels of another gotcha retirement, the author wondered who will save the sport of wrestling from inconsequence and disinterest. With Gotch gone, Hackenschmidt broken and humiliated, Jenkins retired, and quote, The Turks are out of it. The last few batches they sent to this country were very punk. So it was down to Stanislaw Zabisco to carry the burden of making heavyweight wrestling interesting. And remember how I said the Gotch Hackenschmidt rematch would have consequences? Well, from the Wilmington Morning Star on February 7th, 1913. Won't see public gold. No heavyweight match in Chicago, says Mayor. Quote, None of the crowd that gulled the public in the Gotch Hackenschmidt fiasco of 1911 will get a permit to stage a wrestling match between Zabisco and Lurich. Heavyweights, according to Mayor Harrison, who today informed Chief of Police McWheeney of his decision. The Gotch Hackenschmidt match he referred to as the, quote, Labor Day swindle at White Sox Park in 1911. I think the sporting public of Chicago can get along very nicely with the small shows which are being given in halls and theaters, declares the mayor. Again, the damage done by that match lingered for years. Speaking of Gotch and Lurich, on April 1st, 1913, Gotch defeated George Lurich, Greco-Roman legend, Estonian national hero, weird liar, and subject of a two-part series we did a while back. Little could anyone suspect, but this would be the last big match and the final title defense of Frank Gotch's career. April 4th, 1913, Tom Jenkins versus Ernst Rover in a four-minute exhibition with William Muldoon as the referee as part of a fundraiser for victims of a flood in the Ohio Valley. $5,000 was raised by sports fans who came to see a night of boxing and wrestling for a good cause. And we don't really hear much from Jenkins until the New York Times Union on December 10th, 1913. Jenkins would wrestle again. Veteran imposes only one condition, and that the best be secured. Quote, The way I feel today, I don't think there is a wrestler in the world that can defeat me. With Gotch on the retired list, I am willing to come out to claim the title and defend it against all comers. I was only beaten three times by Gotch, who is on the retired list, by Mahmoud, who was killed in the Balkan War, and by Zabisco, who says he won't return to this country. With these fellows out of the game, who is there to defeat me? If there is anybody that thinks he can pin my shoulders to the mat, let him try. And this is a weird one. The Ottawa Citizen on December 4th, 1913, claimed that, quote, Yusuf Mahmoud, who was reportedly killed in Bulgaria, is to be starred on a wrestling tour through Canada. His act will be featured as Back from the Grave. And yes, goddammit, I love pro wrestling. The Boston Globe on December 14th, 1913. Jenkins matched. Former champion will meet Poplovsky in Wrestling Carnival. Quote, George Tui has selected Yosef Poplovsky, the clever Polander, who has proven his class in the West and in New York since coming to this country. The media pounced on the story, some positive, some reprints with indifference, some calling it a stunt, and the Indianapolis Star on December 21st had the headline, quote, Hark from the tomb, old Tom Jenkins claims Gotcha's title. The Boston Globe on December 22nd had Tom Jenkins sighs for conquest again. And the next day, the Boston Globe had a weird piece about how, quote, if you meet Tom Jenkins when he comes to Boston to keep his wrestling engagement on Christmas night, don't be afraid to shake hands with a big fellow. No girl has a gentler grip than this ex-champion. It is a matter of comment among all who meet him. I guess there was a lot of conversation about how he shakes hands. Seems strange. Whatever. And the Boston Globe covered the Christmas night card the following morning. Carl Lemley defeats Paul Alvarez. Alex Aberg defeats George Lurich. And Tom Jenkins defeated... Valdek Bonecci? Who? Well, looks like Pawlowski wanted more money than his contract called for, and he was replaced on the show. 
So in front of 3,000 fans at the Mechanics Building, Jenkins won in 20 minutes, 24 seconds, and then a mere 3 minutes, 42 seconds for the big win. Newspapers describe Jenkins as being in great shape, despite his increasingly graying hair. And apparently he had a reinvigorated taste for competition, because the January 9th, 1914 Brooklyn Times Union claimed that Jenkins had his sights set on the upcoming international tournament at Madison Square Garden. But who else was ready to come back? Why, Frank Gotch, of course. After all, why wouldn't he? The Buffalo Inquirer on January 14th, 1914, Tom Jenkins comes back for Pachyderm Rally. The event was promoted by Harry Pollock and Jack Curley and was a heavyweight elimination tournament. Competitors had to post $100 to enter and the first prize was $5,000. The Bridgeport Times and Evening Farmer on January 15th, wrestling bouts in New York are funny, reported that 12 wrestlers, quote, each announced as a representative of some nation, came together in an elimination tournament. The matches furnished more comedy than wrestling skills. Tom Jenkins was on the program, but was not there. The final bout featured Mort Henderson, the future masked marvel, and he lost to his future 1915 international tournament rival, Alexander Aberg. Why wasn't he there? Was he not actually booked? Did he forget to set an alarm? Well, according to the Brooklyn Times Union on February 25th, he was unable to attend due to an illness in the family. The Newark Star Eagle on February 25th, 1914, Tom Jenkins entered. It claimed that Tom Jenkins has entered the tournament at Madison Square Garden on March 16th, having drawn Vladek Zabisco for his opponent. The match would actually take place on the 10th. The New York Times covered the match the following day, and the article made sure to point out that, quote, many of the spectators were women. It also stated that the matches, quote, contained enough of the burlesque which bordered on genuine efforts to prove satisfactory to the onlooker. What a nice way to say it was just all fancy worked matches. The match was youth and strength versus age and experience, with Jenkins still having enough agility to keep up with the young pole, the match ended with Jenkins caught in, quote, a back hammerlock and neck hold, which when persisted in, caused Jenkins to cry, that'll do, when the referee failed to hear. Since the referee didn't hear the forfeit, Jenkins, quote, dropped back on both shoulders with his right arm limp behind him and his collarbone apparently dislocated. He wasn't injured, but, quote, felt that his arm might be broken unless he stopped and rather than have such an accident, he preferred to quit, thinking more of his West Point job than of a victory or defeat. So despite being nearly 50, Tom put up a heck of a fight against the younger Zabisco. But there's no time to sit and mope when another challenge comes calling, this time in the form of Raoul du Rasson at St. Anne's Hall in Ottawa on March 27th. According to the Ottawa Citizen, Jenkins was a last-minute substitute for Charles Simond, who was apparently beaten by Durasan a few nights previous and had a broken jaw as a participation trophy. The New York Times on March 28, 1914, covered the previous night's match. The French grappler beat Jenkins in two falls, the first in 31 minutes with a body lock into a chancery, and the second in 10 minutes via toehold. The Ottawa Citizen claimed it was 12 minutes for the second fall, and another paper would claim it was 19, so hey, you know what, we'll call it somewhere in the middle. It was reported that De Roussan bit Jenkins during the match. The Kansas City Star on April 7th printed, De Roussan says that he isn't at all pleased over the stories printed about his recent bout with Tom Jenkins, in which it was said that he bit the ancient Tom three times. Raoul vehemently denies that he bit Tom more than once. And in what was clearly the biggest news story of the year, Tom Jenkins visits Detroit. According to the Detroit Free Press on August 6, 1914, Tom Jenkins was visiting his friend Harry Turhill, one of the Tiger trainers, and I mean the sports team, not the actual apex predator giant cat. 
clearly it was a slow news day. And in late August, advertisements started appearing for Tom Jenkins vs. Leo Pardello on Monday, September 7th, Labor Day, at the Armory Rink in Charleston, West Virginia. 50 cents, 75 cents, and $1 for tickets. The Charleston Daily Mail on September 3, 1914, reported that Jenkins will arrive with his trainer, Harry Tuttle, or Turhill, depends on what paper I'm looking at, of the Detroit Tigers. The final ad, printed the day of the event, claimed, quote, Winner of this match will try Gotch for the world's championship, though I'm sure Frank Gotch would have said otherwise. The Daily Mail covered the match with, Jenkins wins from Pardello on fluke. Italian sustains severe fall, putting him out of the running. Promoters lost heavily. Quote, with one fall to the credit of each, Tom Jenkins, America's former champion heavyweight wrestler, last night won the match at the Armory from Leo Pardello, the Italian champion, by default. A few minutes after renewal of operations on the mat, the third time, Pardello, in making a lunge at his opponent, failed to hook up with his object, and his 224 pounds of anatomy fell with a crash to the floor from the platform on which the exhibition was being given. Ah, for fuck's sake. So he shot at Jenkins, missed by a mile, flew through the ropes to the floor and got hurt. I have no information as to whether or not he looked into the camera while hovering midair and held up a sign that said, yikes, before plummeting Wiley Coyote style. Jenkins got the first fall in 14 minutes and 8 seconds with a double Nelson. Pardello got the second fall with a hammer and toe hold at 14 minutes, 51 seconds. Quote, A small crowd witnessed the contest. It was the greatest match of its kind ever staged in Charleston. More than $600 was lost by the promoter of the match. This is the risk of running big matches in small markets. So you used to have Tom Jenkins headlining Madison Square Garden and the biggest arenas coast to coast in the biggest cities. And now he's in a small town in West Virginia, not even moving enough tickets to cover the card. So yeah, this promoter was ambitious. He got himself a big star who was past his prime and thought it would all work out marvelously just as many wrestling promoters have before and definitely since. And the sports papers in 1915 are noticeably different than they were even a few years back. No more do we hear of the rivalries between Jenkins, Gotch, Hackenschmidt, Stanislaw Zabisco, Fred Beal, John Pining, Jack Karkeek, Dr. Roller, and their contemporaries. Now it's about Vladik Zabisco, Charlie Cutler, Ed the Strangler Lewis, and the hottest property in the sport, Joe Stetcher. 1915 is also notable for the international tournament in New York City. There's an entire episode about it in the Pro Wrestling History Nerds archives, but to spin it quick. A promoter wanted to establish a new recognized champion since Gotch retired with the title and left everything in chaos, but he wanted to establish a Greco-Roman champion and return wrestling to the prestige of the 1880s and the days of William Muldoon. But the public had grown accustomed to the fast-paced, exciting catch-as-catch-can wrestling of the day, and wasn't interested in a tournament made up mostly of European refugees fleeing the continent as war flared up. So in the end, they introduced The Masked Marvel, which was Mort Henderson under a mask, and a bunch of showbiz nonsense that caught the public's attention and filled the house with people cheering for the masked marvel as he faced off against the continental titans of grappling style that they didn't care much about. It was an attempt to return wrestling to a substance over spectacle event and failed miserably. On January 6, 1916, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle gave Jenkins credit for the spread of Catch's Catch Can Wrestling, though I'm sure men like Evan Lewis, Farmer Burns, and Dan McLeod might have disagreed with that one. The same page had an article about how a wrestler will beat a boxer in a real fight, a topic that would be in the media nonstop, whether it was Ed Strangler Lewis versus Jack Dempsey, Ali versus Anoki, or leading up to the invention of the Ultimate Fighting Championship and mixed martial arts. 
The Brooklyn Citizen on March 5th, 1926. Tom Jenkins is strong for Lewis. Jenkins offered praise for Ed Strangler Lewis with, quote, Lewis has several things, chief of which is a marvelous coolly quick brain. He is several streets and five or six alleys ahead of the average opponent in figuring out a campaign, and puts his ideas into such instant action as to befuddle a man who needs time to make up his mind. Lewis is much ahead of other wrestlers in power and thought, and just far enough in advance of the powerful foreign stars to practically mortgage his titles for years to come. Around this time, there were rumors that Frank Gotch was going to come out of retirement to face Joe Stetcher. It's been widely claimed that Gotch wanted to do the right thing and drop the title on the way out, but he wasn't going to do it for just anyone. He needed to lose so he could legitimately retire and get people to leave him the hell alone, but he wasn't going to tarnish his legacy by passing the torch to someone he saw as an inferior talent. It had to mean something to both the wrestling business and to himself. Fans and the press were already speculating how it would go. The Omaha Daily News on April 30th, 1916 published, quote, Thinks Joe will eventually beat Gotch, but not yet. Which puts Stetcher in the same league as Gotch already, but that he would need a few more years to fully mature and be able to capture the title. Articles like this put Stetcher in the public's estimation much higher than even Hackenschmidt or Jenkins had been in the years past. The problem was the money, the venue, the finish, etc. And while this was being argued, Gotch picked up a tour with a Cells Floto Circus while the wrestling promoters of America fought over who would get the Stetcher-Gotch match. There were also rumors of Gotch being very sick. According to the Oakland Tribune on May 17, 1916, Otto Floto came that Gotch's symptoms indicated stomach cancer. Meanwhile, everyone else was clambering for their shot as well. In the Fremont Herald on May 12th, Strangler Lewis stated that he deserved a match against Gotch even more than Stetcher did. And ultimately, neither match would take place. On July 18th in Kenosha, Wisconsin, Frank Gotch broke his leg while doing an exhibition match with Bob Manigoff. They had been wrestling less than two minutes when Gotch made a turn, his left foot caught between the mats, and the fibula of his left leg snapped. Gotch's leg would never recover well enough for him to want to wrestle again. After decades of triumphs, politicking, mind games with the press and opponents, making more money than he could ever spend, and being the first true superstar of the wrestling world, it was all over. His career was done. In the Pittsburgh Press on November 18, 1916, I found an announcement that Dan McLeod was settling into a coaching position at the Los Angeles Athletic Club. It's good to see the wrestling men who spent their lives on the road and in the ring finding a career landing pad in the only world they know. It's always good when a wrestler or a boxer or a fighter or whatever has that coaching ability because it allows them to take that knowledge, that ability, and be able to properly communicate it to the next generation, not only to pass their expertise along, but to put money in their pockets well into old age. April 4th, 1917, the U.S. declares war on Germany and thus enters the First World War. If you've listened to our series on wrestling leading up to the 1920s, you know how many wrestlers had to put their careers on hold. But for Jenkins, it was a much deeper concern. Having trained every single cadet at the West Point Academy, many of which would soon be sent to France and the horrors of trench combat. According to the November 22, 1919 New York Times, 33 West Point graduates died in combat, and that just covers the dead, not the wounded, crippled, disfigured, or emotionally destroyed. And Tom Jenkins almost certainly knew them all by name. And life being what it is, the hits keep coming. On Sunday, December 16, 1916, Frank Gotch died of uremic poisoning due to kidney failure. He had been sick for the last few years, 
and many pointed out how bad he looked while on his final circus tour. The funeral was held in Humboldt, Iowa on the 19th. 600 people attended the service at Congregational Church, but nearly 1,200 more waited outside in a vigil. Businesses closed, the school gotch attended as a boy closed, and Governor W.L. Harding was in attendance. This information was from the Davenport Daily Times on the 20th. So it's really something to think of a man of Gotcha's stature, of Gotcha's position, trying to put together a big match to drop the title while suffering from kidney disease, suffering from kidney failure. There were rumors, of course, that it was syphilis, but it wasn't. It was unfortunately something as common as a failed kidney that felled the champion. Most of 1918 was spent memorializing Frank Gotch and looking back on his career. Boxer James J. Corbett wrote a series of articles about Gotch's matches. The one published nationwide on June 3, 1918, claimed, quote, The roughest bout ever put on was the second battle between Frank Gotch and Tom Jenkins on January 27, 1904. Obviously, I covered that one in detail when discussing that year, but it's fun to see how nostalgia makes one look back like this more than a decade later. Remember, they didn't have the internet to look at clips, and they couldn't just pop in a DVD of the match to rewatch the show. They had to look back through the faulty eye of memory and personal prejudices, so it's telling how Corbett gravitated to a match known for its violence. Speaking of violence, on November 14, 1921, Tom Jenkins was one of the judges in the foul-filled, ultra-violent match between Marin Plastina and John Pesek at Madison Square Garden. Plastina had been calling out the Sandow Syndicate for blacklisting him from their big cards and matches. He was told to have a shoot match with John Pesek, who could have beaten him clean if he wanted to, but he was there to send a message and hospitalize Plastina with strikes and try to gouge out his eyes. Listen to the episode titled Lewis vs. Abisko and Pesek vs. Plastina for details. The Boston Globe on November 1st, 1927 announced the death of promoter and manager George Toohey, who represented Jenkins for many years. Tom Jenkins was a health-obsessed man. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He did calisthenics. He believed in stretching and posture and all the things that keep you healthy in old age. But one of the downsides of old age is watching your friends and loved ones who didn't take such good care of themselves or who were just plain unlucky die well before yourself. And sometimes you even read about your own death. In April 1928, Liberty Magazine published a piece by William A. Brady looking back upon the match between Tom Jenkins and the original Terrible Turk, Yusuf Ismail. Quote, Jenkins never recovered. He suffered severe injuries that indirectly led to his death some years later. As you can imagine, many articles came out after this, poking fun at the mistaken memory of the old promoter and manager of the Terrible Turk. Quote, Like Mark Twain, Jenkins says story of his death was grossly exaggerated, appeared in papers all over, like the April 8, 1928 Star Tribune. Quote, if Brady would like to come up and test out my corpse, he might get the shock of his life, Jenkins said. And though retired from the ring, the still-alive Tom Jenkins was keeping quite busy. In July of 1928, the Olympic wrestling team was heading to West Point to train, with Jenkins assisting in coaching the team. And even though he hadn't had a match in many years, the sports pages were still trotting out the Quote, this happened in wrestling 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 40 years ago, with exaggeration and lies piling up as to what happened. There were also plenty of the, quote, did you know that former champion wrestler Tom Jenkins now coaches at West Point articles as though he were a missing person? I guess to many sports fans he was. And important information like this gem found in the Louisville, Kentucky Courier Journal on July 1st, 1931, quote, Tom Jenkins, West Point wrestling coach, wears the same style derby hat that he wore when a champion of the mat. You really can't do without news like that. 
And as I said, the mistakes, the lies, the exaggerations, the bad information that you find later on in the newspapers is kind of funny, but it makes sense because everything at this point has been an oral tradition. Not many people are going to dig through the old newspapers like a maniac like myself to find details. They're going off the fuzziness of their memory, or at this point, the memory of the old men who watched the match, listening to their fathers talk about the match, and the old sports editor whom through 15 bourbons after work is happy to tell you a story of something he saw as a young man. Like the Chicago Tribune claiming that it was Tom Jenkins who won the title off of Evan the Strangler Lewis in the August 21st, 1934 issue. And I guess when you're looking back that far on the horizon, it's hard to tell what's what when squinting on the sunset of memories. From the Tampa Tribune on April 25th, 1936, Tom Jenkins is fully in his get off my lawn, you damn kids era. Tom Jenkins warns against burlesque wrestling battles, in which he complains about the showmanship over, quote, real sport and wrestling. The only place you see real wrestling today is at college and other amateur matches. The professionals do not wrestle. They have become tumblers and kickers and punchers and jumpers about. Just unprincipled acrobats. The whole thing must be amusing if they didn't take the customer's money. I see no difference between selling tickets for professional wrestling performances and working the shell game on people out in the street. Both are unethical, to put it mildly. From the April 25th, 1936 Montreal Times, quote, I do not need to tell you of the shameful condition that exists in the game today. You can read the reports coming out of Columbus about the Dick Chiquette hearing. It makes me fighting mad to see my profession shamed this way. I was a professional for 11 years. I wrestled seven years without being beaten and always on the level. I give you my word of honor on that. The best man always won in those days, and people paid to see us. Big crowds. They didn't have to give them circus stunts. The fans were satisfied with science and strength and courage. The Dick Chikat situation was a federal court ordeal about the contracts to managers, the promoter trust of the day, wrestlers being ordered to lose titles, and promoters conspiring to, well, to promote pro wrestling as it actually was. So, yeah, he's definitely in the grouchy old man, but you look at every sport, every part of culture, movies, music, life in general, at a certain point when life has passed you by to a certain extent, it's natural to look back on nostalgia when you were in your prime, when you were on top of the world, and declare it a better world full of more talent and more ability and a bigger struggle of any kind compared to what these darn kids are doing today. And another legend passed away on February 8th, 1937. Martin Farmer Burns, the one-time rival of Jenkins, died at the age of 75 in Council Bluffs, Iowa. But no personal blow would equal what happened to the nation as a whole on December 7, 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and the U.S. entered the Second World War. I wonder how Tom Jenkins, who watched many of his cadets leave for France and never return during World War I, felt knowing what was certainly coming next. Jenkins officially retired from the military academy in 1942 after 37 years of coaching and instruction. From the New York Times on August 18, 1942. At the age of 70, and after 37 years of service at West Point, he would be retiring at the end of the month. His retirement made national news, and plenty of mistakes were made while looking back on his career. According to the Tulsa World on August 18, 1942, Tom Jenkins won the title from Farmer Burns and lost it to Yusuf the Terrible. I guess it's the thought that counts. And I can barely fathom how good a job must be to do it for 37 years and into old age like that. His students at West Point included Omar Bradley, George Patton, and future president Dwight D. Eisenhower. And he seemed to enjoy his retirement. 
The Lima, Ohio News on July 31st, 1952, wrote about Jenkins, now 80, visiting his granddaughter. Tom entertained everyone with stories of his career, especially wrestling the original Terrible Turk and Frank Gotch. Captain Albert Ellis, the husband of Jenkins' granddaughter, told a story about how when he was a cadet, Jenkins, then a mere 70, would select the biggest young cadet from each class and would throw him against the wall in seconds, which reminds me of Saul Bandini from the movie Ready to Rumble. If you haven't seen it, go watch it today. Jenkins complimented his former student Dwight D. Eisenhower as, quote, a nice boy and stated his support for Eisenhower as a presidential hopeful. The Des Moines Register on August 5th, 1956, published a photo of now 84-year-old Tom Jenkins discussing the matches against Frank Gotch from half a century ago. Think about how important those matches were to warrant such retrospection in the press. I was a little uncomfortable with the paper making fun of him for claiming he had no matches after he started coaching at West Point, wondering if he had a twin wrestling under his name, even if somebody isn't suffering from dementia or anything like that. Think about trying to dig up a memory from five years ago, let alone 50. When you have that much memory going on, it takes a while to dig it out and you make mistakes. It's also interesting to see the photos of Jenkins in old age because he stopped wearing his glass eye, wasn't wearing an eye patch, so he would just be walking around with a very sunken, empty eye socket, which I'm sure was a little discomforting for many. Tom Jenkins died on June 19, 1957, at the age of 84. According to his obituary in the June 2nd New York Times, he succumbed to injuries he suffered in a fall at his home in Cornwall on Hudson, New York. He was survived by two daughters, Mrs. Lavinia Schrader, with whom he was living, and Mrs. Murray Colker of West Point. Thank you to the Bridgeport, Connecticut Post for finally mentioning his family instead of just his career. It was one of the few obituaries that did so. He was buried at the United States Military Academy Post Cemetery at West Point. Colonel Red Reader stated that, quote, Tom looked like a grizzly bear on the prowl. He had a catch-as-catch-can style that barred only death by strangulation. He detested present-day wrestlers of the flim-flam and faker school. He took to the mat in the days when matches were tests of skill and courage. He out-wrestled George Hackenschmidt, the Russian lion, and Yusuf, the terrible Turk. Not exactly true, but it was nice of him to say. Colonel John Harvey claimed that Jenkins would tell people Gotch gouged out his eye, even if that wasn't true whatsoever. Quote, A gent that'll gouge out another gent's eye ain't no gent, so I broke his arm in two places. Again, the nice thing about outliving your rival in the pre-internet days is you get to tell whatever story you damn well please, just as Hackenschmidt did for years to come. The Yonkers Daily Statesman pointed out that during Jenkins' tenure as a wrestling coach for the intercollegiate team at West Point, they only had four losing seasons between 1921 and 1942. In a tribute published by the York Dispatch, Colonel John Corley talked about the Battle of the Bulge and how one night while waiting for rescue he fell asleep and dreamed about his day as a cadet, and how Tom Jenkins would ask them, quote, how much do you weigh? And then would make them wrestle regardless of weight. Quote, I got the idea that you did not have to be as big as the other fellow to win. I did not surrender the battalion. And that was Tom Jenkins paying off the United States. And that's the 10-bell salute for the life of Tom Jenkins, for the story of Tom Jenkins, for Tom Jenkins the wrestler, for Tom Jenkins the icon, for Tom Jenkins the human being, the man in full, 
for the story that I have spread out in the course of the last five and a half months, I've been researching it for longer. This was a series that became important to me, and I really can't say why. You know, sometimes you just fixate on an idea and you can't rest until you see it through. Um, I'd like to say this is the definitive story of Tom Jenkins, but there are details that just didn't find their way into this. There were side quests about other things in, in history that could have provided context for things, but I was trying to tell this story as completely as possible, but as quickly as possible, while still maintaining the amount of detail and depth that I have provided. I talked earlier about how there isn't that definitive biography of Tom Jenkins, and in my own humble estimation, there is now. It's an audio format. It's this 11-part series, and I'm going to take the information that I have, the little bits of information that I left out. I'm going to keep doing some research. I need to find census reports. I want to know more about his family, when he was married, when his children were born, when his grandchildren were born. I want to bring this man to life even more than I already have. Eventually, there will be a book. Um, don't start looking on Amazon for a pre-order anytime soon because I need a break from the story of Tom Jenkins so I can go back to it with fresh eyes, with fresh energy, because I have lived in this man's universe for months and months, and I definitely need to get a little distance. So I look forward to doing different topics for the first time in a while. Um, we're going to have a couple of fun short ones. I'm already planning a somewhat longer series returning to this exact same era with a different star. I'm excited about it. I'm not going to really tell you anything about it. You have to wait a couple of months before I start dropping those episodes. But I love revisiting the same period with different people because you see it in a different perspective. You get the, the Roshimon effect. You know, if you look at this as the story of Tom Jenkins, it's a different story if you look at that era with Frank Gotch being the hero or Dan McLeod being the hero. Everybody has their own perspective, their own context, their own part in history, and I'm glad I got to present the story of Tom Jenkins. So thanks for being here. Um, make sure you like us on Facebook, follow on Instagram and Twitter, X, whatever the hell they're calling it these days. I like to post the articles and the pictures that I find in old papers. If you find that as fascinating as I do, even in small bites, by all means, check it out so you can enjoy them as well. But until next time, the next episode, the next topic, my name's Nick Gossert. I'll talk to you soon.